0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network, New Books in History podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Dignitz, and today I'm speaking with Professor David Stevenson about his new book, 1917, War, Peace, and Revolution. Professor Stevenson is Stevenson Chair of International History at the London School of Economics, where he studies international relations in Europe during the 19th and 20th centuries, and he specializes in the origins, course, and impact of the First World War. His publications include With Our Backs to the Wall, Victory and Defeat in 1918, 1914 to 1918, The History of the First World War, also published as Cataclysm, The First World War as Political Tragedy, and as uh, La Grande Guerra, Una Historia Globale. And other books by Professor Stevenson include Armaments and the Coming of War, Europe 1904 to 1914, The First World War and International Politics, and French War Aims Against Germany 1914 to 1919. So, very, clear, uh, very clearly, Professor, you are uh, an expert of towering erudition on the subject of the First World War, and it is a pleasure and a privilege to speak with you today. Welcome to the program.
1: Hello, great pleasure to be with you.
0: So, uh, your your remarkable book, 1917, is is both narrow and broad. On the one hand, it focuses on a single year, with a little looking forward and a little looking back. But on the other hand, you take us all over the world, from German headquarters to French command, to the Wilson White House, to the Petrograd Soviet, the naval contest for the Atlantic, to Greece, Brazil, Siam, and China, India, and Palestine, proving that this European made apocalypse was truly the First World War. Could, could you tell, Professor, what, what moved you to write this book, now on the centenary of the event, and what moved you to write this work and to write it in this way? Describe your thesis and tell us what the stakes are as we reconsider the Great War exactly now and what it means in
1: 2018. Yeah, that's um, a, a lot of important questions. Uh, one of the things that moved me to write it, of course, the centenary of 1917 was it was important, but I didn't choose to write about 1917 simply because of the centenary, but also because a great deal, of course, happens in that year, um, apart from 1914 itself. It's perhaps the most significant benchmark date in the war, and um, particularly because of the Russian Revolution and American entry into the war. Um, it's a date that's remained... Um, remembered very much and commemorated, but there's a lot of other things that happened during the year as well all over the world, and there's a great density of concentration of events that I wanted to focus on. Um, It's not just like arbitrary that I chose 12 months. Um, There are a number of other books that kind of seize on 12-month periods to give you a portrait of a year, but I would argue that what happens in 1917 is of great significance in understanding the history of the First World War and also the impact that that war has had on the rest of the 20th century and on into the 21st. So one of the key arguments that I put is that if, if we're looking at 1914, 1918 and First World War as a whole, there are, there are two turning points, two key turning points. The first one is at the end of 1914, really, when the initial war of movement comes to an end and the army is bogged down in a kind of stalemate trench warfare that lasts for the next two and a half years. And 19- 1917 is the second turning point. Um, the war changed his character again um, because of the things that I've mentioned, American coming into the war on the one hand and the Russian Revolution on, on the other, opened the way to the, the war's kind of end game, which uh, culminates, as we know, with Germany's partial defeat and uh, the ceasefire of November 1918. Um, one of the reasons for looking at 1917 is that it if you like, highlights particularly starkly the whole question of what was driving the war and what kept it going, because by 1917, it had already been fought for two and a half years. There'd been hundreds of thousands of casualties. Nothing nothing like this had been seen before, and no one could have any illusions, really, by 1917, what ordering a major offensive on the Western Front would mean. The human sacrifice that would be entailed. So the question is really why people keep going. No one by 1917 is in an age of innocence about what modern industrialized warfare entails. Um, And it's significant that it's in 1917 that the major peace initiatives and peace moves of the First World War are concentrated. So the war really, looking at that year, really highlights particularly strongly what the political factors were that made it so difficult to bring the war to an end. Um, Just one final point on this. One of the themes that I try to argue in the book is that by 1917, nearly everyone is looking for an exit. The British, French, the Germans recognize that it's not turned out to be the kind of war they expected when it began. Um, They're looking for quick Fast solutions that will extricate them from the war without having to make major political sacrifices. And a good example of that is the German decision for unrestricted submarine warfare, which they hope will starve the British out in five months before the Americans can do anything. So that's, that's the sort of context. Everybody is looking for quick fix solutions to get out of the war, but what they're not prepared to do is to abandon their fundamental political objectives. If I can just say finally a word about the U.S. because this seems particularly paradoxical that the U.S. chooses to come in. Why does it do it when by April 1917 they're entering this unprecedented total war with tremendous casualties and Woodrow Wilson, the president, is very well aware of the moral responsibilities that lie on his decision to intervene and that it's going to mean the deaths and mutilation of tens of thousands of young Americans. And uh, One of the arguments that I tried to put to kind of explain that paradox is that the kind of war the Americans were hoping they would fight would be one that would be over quite quickly that they would make mainly an economic and financial and naval contribution, and they would send an army across to Europe, but it would be quite a small one. What they hope, what the underlying problem here is that the Americans thought that the Allies were much closer to victory and the Germans much closer to defeat than was actually the case. So they underestimated the effort that would be required to defeat Germany and thought that by a relatively small contribution and a relatively low sacrifice they could achieve a disproportionate political payoff by giving america preponderant influence in seeming to win the war and having a seat at the peace conference table
0: uh, and there there are uh... Many many factors there in uh, you you just mentioned the uh, unrestricted submarine warfare and um, Wilson's decision to join on the side of the allies. In your book, you also add the the, the Russian Revolution which knocked out one of the allies uh, also in 1917. Uh, fascinating to me is this point that you just made that a quick, fast solution is desired to get out of the war without sacrificing too much. Is it because the war was too expensive at this point, too many had died, too many had suffered for a a political surrender to be um, tolerable, uh, that that on the one hand they had um, bled so much for this war, on the other hand they hadn't bled so much that they could throw in uh, all their their convictions and all their
1: promises to to those people on all sides? Yeah, I think... Yeah yeah I mean I think that puts the dilemma quite well really um you you can't understand 1917 without looking at 1916 and what had happened in 1916 was immense battles gone for months the uh, battle of Verdun uh, battle of the Somme on the Western Front, the Russian uh, battle on the Eastern Front, usually called the Brusilov Offensive after the Russian commander. All of those things go on for weeks, even months, and all of them have casualties running into the hundreds of thousands. and Nothing really like this had been seen in warfare previously. Um, so that's, that's the kind of context and also the the economic costs of the war, easy to overlook, but remember that the war is primarily paid for by borrowing. Most governments cover only a fraction of the cost of the war from taxation. So it's primarily kept going by government's ability to borrow from their own citizens and particularly that means from the wealthy, if you like, or the people who've got some money to set aside, but that the upper and middle classes have invested huge amounts of money in government bonds in all the belligerent countries, and a def- defeat will mean those bonds are likely to become worthless. So it's the middle class, it's it's the belligerent populations of the countries involved are not only committing their sons. But they're also committing their savings to, to, to the war effort. And that, that's part of the reason why it's very difficult for governments by 1917 to turn round to the public and say, well, thank you very much for the effort you've made. But now we're going to make a compromise, especially as a central, an essential part of the rhetoric up until now, employed by governments on both sides, was that a compromise piece would just be a truce that you must finish the job and achieve a complete victory, or at some point in the future, it will be necessary to do this all over again. Yeah, So that that's really important, I think, in explaining some of the obstacles that stand in the way of a compromised peace. But on the other hand, your other point is right. A key thing to say in 1917 is that the attempts at negotiated peace all fail. And this there are various reasons for this, but one fundamental part of the problem is that neither governments on neither side have given up the hope of military victory, military breakthrough. Um, that's true on the German side because of the Russian Revolution. I think that's, that's the key thing that they creates a situation where the Germans have an opportunity to move uh, a large part of their armed forces from the Eastern Front to the Western Front. Uh, on the other hand, the allies uh, are able to keep going and avoid up in large measure because of America's entry into the war which they know will take a long time for the Americans to build up their war effort and get their people across the Atlantic they're thinking in terms of of an allied victory with American aid perhaps in 1919 even in 1920 so it's going to take a long time but nonetheless that's thought to be better to gamble on the hope of a long term victory with American aid than on a short term compromise peace where they have to turn around to their popular and saying, well, what we hope this war will deliver has not done. And I think
0: your choice of words there, gambling, is key. And that that is a theme of, of the early portion of your book where you make the case that also on the German side, the desire, the the ch- the decision to uh, enter into U-boat unrestricted uh, submarine warfare was was uh, was a gamble. And as uh, German Chancellor, Bethmann Hollweg called it a last card or a dice throw, which reminds me of Julius Caesar: to, was, "You have nothing left to lose. You might as well, or, or actually, I'm sorry, you have far too much to lose." So. Why not gamble one more time and war is for risk takers, we know, but this is an example of a great strategic mistake, but they feel with their backs against the wall, they have no choice. Had they not entered with unrestricted submarine warfare, you write that it seems likely that uh, Germany by late 1917 would have secured, if not a crushing military victory, but at least a favorable draw in negotiations with a demoralized and physioporous opposing bloc, which is a uh, quite, quite a, quite a thing to have, almost had.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you're you're absolutely right to in in, in a way. It's true of all the time, of course, in politics, even in peacetime. But it's still more in, in wartime. Politicians, in, in a sense, by the nature of their job, are, are having to make decisions in circumstances of great uncertainty, where the stakes are very high. Um, and that's true, if like for all of the belligerents in 1917, but the. German decision for unrestricted submarine warfare is a particularly striking example about this, of this because it's, it's a gamble. It's known to be a gamble. There are people who warn against it uh, and the gamble is nonetheless taken and the gamble turns out to be disastrous. Um, it's revealing because the Germans had repeatedly debated whether to embark on unrestricted submarine warfare, which means, by the way, torpedoing Allied and neutral ships without warning. Yeah, We're talking about uh, attacks on Allied American merchant ships, line passenger liners, even hospital ships. All, all of this is thought to be fair game if you apply an unrestricted submarine warfare policy, and the submarine will not surface to give warning before, before it sinks the ship. It will just torpedo it. So that's what unrestricted submarine warfare means, and that the Germans know it's brutal. They know it. It's kind of terrorist tactics, and at least a large part of their objective is to frighten new merchant shipping off the seas so that the ships they can't sink will will be too frightened to put out to sea and will stay in port, and that will paralyze the Allied shipping routes and Allied trade and supplies. So that's what the Germans are thinking of doing, and um, it's at that stage in human history it was thought to be extremely shocking. They might be more hard-hearted about it today, but in America, of course, from the sinking of the Lusitania passenger liner onwards in 1915, this was widely thought, what the Germans were doing was thought to be atrocious and be unacceptable, inhumane, uh, illegal, in fact, and the Americans repeatedly warned against it, led by the American government under Woodrow Wilson, which repeatedly protests. So the Germans know when they embark on unrestricted submarine warfare that it's highly likely to bring America in, but their gamble is that the effect of the unrestricted submarine warfare will be to paralyze British shipping and force Britain to negotiate for peace or face starvation within five months, so that even if America does come into the war, it will be too late to make any difference. The Germans effectively will have won. Now, if you kind of run a counterfactual on this and say what would have happened if the Germans had not decided for unrestricted submarine warfare, but carried on, if you like, with conventional submarine warfare, which is what they're doing up until then, where the submarine does surface and give warning and attacks allies shipping rather than neutral shipping, you know, if you run that scenario, the Germans were already sinking an awful lot of Allied shipping. The British cabinet was already extremely worried. If they'd carried on with that, they would have not sunk as much shipping as with unrestricted submarine warfare, but they still have sunk an awful lot. And You can still assume that something like the Russian Revolution would have happened anyway, that the French army mutinies in the summer of 1917 would have happened anyway. That um, Britain would certainly have faced uh, a very serious economic crisis because before America came into the war, the British Treasury warned that Britain had the ability to keep financing its imports from America only for about a month, only for a few more weeks. So if you put all that together um, it 's highly likely I think that the allies would if, the, if America had not come in, the allies would still have faced a succession of major crises in the uh, winter of, in the summer of one thousand nine hundred and seventeen would not have seen how they could win if they didn't have America coming in to support them. And so the most likely consequence, I think, is that the war would have ended with some kind of negotiated solution, and that negotiated solution would have happened uh, on terms which have been unfavorable to the Allies and much more favorable to the Germans uh, than the, the terms on which the war was actually ended in 1918.
0: I I'm uh, delighted that you are willing to run that scenario as you say because I find that often we historians are hesitant to make any any guesses and and play the counterfactual uh what if game but it, especially in, in in this case where so so much uh hinges on so on such contingency or or personal yeah. a- agency here and there uh i I wonder you know if uh, if Gavrilo Princip had not stopped at the Moritz Schiller cafe after his failed assassination and Franz Ferdinand's driver had not taken the wrong turn you know would would this have ha- happened and um you you also write about the the disastrous um uh decision to have the ludendorff offensive in nineteen eighteen uh, sometimes called the Kaiserschlacht. are there other such um uh, moments, tipping points, consequential events where this world hung in the balance that that come to your mind, and I realize this is a, a uh, impertinent question the si- the kind that we ask our students what if Lincoln had stayed home with a cold instead of going to the theater or what if Hitler had been a better painter? Um, are there are there moments like this that you have in your in your long and careful study of the of the first world war wondered? Had we turned left instead of right, or right instead of left?
1: Well, I think you've highlighted the the main ones. The uh, obviously the outbreak of the war in the first place in, in July, August, 1914. Did did that have to happen? There's been a long debate about whether the war was inevitable. Um, my argument, I think, would be that you can see lots of signs that the world was a dangerous place in 1914 and that some kind of local conflict was highly likely to escalate because of the underlying tensions between the great powers, arms race, for example, um, competing alliances, the succession of crises in the Balkans and uh, growing public willingness to accept all of these things, heightened nationalism. You can see all these things before 1914. Having said all that, Um, matter of timing is important that uh, it's the assassinations at Sarajevo in 1914 that caused the war to happen at that time in July 1914 if Princip had missed had not not killed Franz Ferdinand and and Franz Ferdinand's wife then uh, would a war have broken out in the summer of 1914 I think it's unlikely Um, in which case perhaps the tensions in Europe would have eventually subsided if you get through another Year or two, uh, you can see a scenario where the alliances would have been reorganised because the British, French, and Russian and Germans were all becoming worried about the growth of Russian power. So there might have been some scope for realignment in the West, Western bloc to form, and Russia being isolated instead of Germany being isolated. It's it's not impossible, but it's it's a plausible scenario. So if you put all these things together, yeah, it it really does matter the actual events, course of events, the war that the underlying forces economic forces, um, military forces and certain strategic forces made something like the war likely but not inevitable. Um, if you move on to the your other parallel, which is what happens in 1918, uh, I think you can see the war. The course of the war is dominated by a series of German mistakes. Number one is to start the war in the first place. Number two is to launch the unrestricted submarine warfare against the Americans. Number three, as you say, which I talk a bit about in the book, is the so-called Ludendorff offensives or the Kaiser Schlacht in the spring of 1918. Um, by that stage in the war, it was very unlikely to end in the Germans' favour. But it could still have ended with a less disastrous outcome than it did if the Germans had stood on the defensive rather than attacking um, and incurring the casualties of about a million men between March and July of 1918 that they simply couldn't replace. And uh, the timing, the fact that the war ends at the time when it did largely goes back to that German gamble again, decision for a, a massive offensive on the Western Front if they'd waited. The Allies on their side weren't sure even with American aid, how they could break through the German lines without enormous and unacceptable casualties. And it's in a way it's not until the German army weakens itself by going onto to the attack and taking the casualties and going over the parapet that the opportunity begins to arise for the Allies to achieve a decisive breakthrough or at least push the Germans back so much that the Germans lose confidence in their ability to keep on fighting.
0: That's also a remarkable uh, Outstanding point of your book that over and over attackers weaken themselves, and the safest or or most successful tactic, if not strategy, is to stay put and wait for the other fellow to come and throw himself onto your
1: um, onto your earthworks. Well, y- yes, yes, and I mean that that comes, if you like, that argument comes from Clausewitz. The Russian military theorist, you know, on war in the 19th century, where he argues that the defense is stronger than the offense as a means of warfare, which sounds paradoxical, but I can sort of understand what he means. Then, once people go on to the attack, then they're using up their human resources and economic resources at a faster rate than the defender, usually. But having said that, You need to look at why people take the gamble and go on to the attack. That's another thing for understanding the dynamics of something like 1917. One of the key arguments that was always used by people who wanted to go on to the attack was that if you didn't, the enemy would attack you. So, it's important to keep the initiative yeah, in order to re- reduce the ability of the enemy to do you harm. This kind of explains, helps, helps to explain why the Allies keep attacking in 1916 and why the Germans go on to the attack again in 1918, that you can't win a war by staying passive. On the other hand, if you keep on attacking, then sooner or later, if you keep up the tension and the pressure, then the other side may put a foot wrong. Make 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 some kind of strategic miscalculation, and it, I think it, that that's how you un- have to understand confrontations of this kind. Sadly, it's a, it's, a brut- it's a brutal process.
0: It's a, be a great great uh, cost in in um, in human life, and probably a a quite quite steep learning curve. I uh, you you write that by nineteen eighteen, or maybe nineteen seventeen, even the Germans are leaving their first trench rather depopulated, waiting for the. The Allies to charge in so they can counter charge from the second trench and and kill more people that way.
1: Well, both sides by 1917 are, are starting to find ways of breaking through trenches. It's not very apparent in 1917 the the results of that. It becomes much more apparent in 1918. Than what you referred to a moment ago as a learning curve, which is one way of looking at it. And I've, this is an argument that's been put by British historians, and uh, that the Allies are on a learning curve. This is why it takes so long to win the war. And, and in a way, it's true. But you need to remember that the Germans are on a learning curve as well, and that bo- both sides become much more sophisticated in their tactics. So by 1917, you know both sides have far greater quantities of sophisticated heavy weaponry than they'd had in 1914 and still they still are unable to break through. But by 1918 both sides find ways of, of doing that and I mean the breakthrough is never never like 1940. It's not Creek and getting into open country, but both sides find ways of getting around and getting through trench fortifications, and in fact, increasingly, both sides dispense with the kind of single, continuous lines of trenches that you'd had in 1915 or 1916, because they'd just become too vulnerable to the much greater firepower that the two sides have, have at their disposal.
0: It's The firepower, the power, the, the moving barrage, and all the other tactical things are, was this very Painful period of, say, 1915, where with the stagnant trenches that we sort of when we think of World War One, when we look at a movie, a film about World War One, it's it's trench trench warfare. And was that the um, period of military incubation, or the the idea, the the new the 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 way that subsequent wars in Spain and and of course World War Two were fought. Are a direct result of, of 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 this process, and was was this necessary? This uh, this this more horrible. I suppose all war is horrible, but uh, this especially. Um, meat grinder, sort of dehumanising.
1: Well, it, it's necessary if they can't just sit round a table and negotiate to stop it. Um, it's necessary if population, civil populations aren't prepared to rebel or, or armies to desert on mass. You know, it's uh, you need to look at various things. There's a military stalemate. Neither side, before shall we say 1918, has found the means of br- technically of breaking through trench defences. Um, On the other hand, there's also political stalemates that home populations, civilian populations on both sides are actually willing to support the war effort. We may find this strange now, but many millions of people were prepared to support the war effort and uh, volunteer to do military service, go and work in munitions, factories, things they didn't have to do. Um, So in a curious way, the war is popular. Hated, but at the same time supported. Um, and it's also important that governments, there's a diplomatic stalemate that, that um, the issues, territorial disputes, and so on that separate the governments on the two sides uh, are too deep, too painful involved to be resolvable by by people sitting around a table and negotiating. So it's a military stalemate, it's a political stalemate, and it's a diplomatic stalemate, and the three stalemates reinforce each other. But given the political and diplomatic stalemate, given you can't end the war by other means, by peaceful means, or by internal revolution, Then It's very difficult to see, given the issues at stake and the technology of the time, how it could have been done without massive casualties at that stage. Member armies don't have drones, they they don't have smart bombs, they don't have cyber warfare, they don't have means of disrupting and demoralizing the enemy, other than actually sending people across trenches into barbed wire and machine guns, protected only by khaki battle dress.
0: The other clear impression in it that I get from the way you describe the, the political and military leadership process is that the uh, leaders tend to make uh, individual steps with a goal in mind, but each step that they make – changes the conditions that they are operating in so that very soon after making a few command decisions, the new options become unrecognizable. And the two examples that occur to me uh, from from reading 1917 is uh, first a chapter of the abdication of Tsar Nicholas, uh, the family man who loved to, as you say, shovel snow rather than make policy in favor of his brother. But after he does that, his, his brother resides in favor of a provisional government. Well, soon that is replaced by a Bolshevik government. And so... Um, what the Tsar had hoped to accomplish is quickly swept off the table, and and likewise the U.S. decision to enter the war, equally important. With uh, Wilson has deep reticence, but his incremental coming around, almost compelled by by conditions and red lines that he himself has drawn, he soon finds himself in in the position he most uh, uh, would would hesitate to take naturally, which is. Uh, engagement in this in this global war uh, could you describe the the the
1: yes yeah, so yes yeah there are lots of examples of what's sometimes called the law of unintended consequences and um, we've you've put your finger on a couple of them um i mean i have a chapter on the What's called in Russia the, the February Revolution, but by the Western calendar actually happened in March, because the Russian calendar was 13 days behind the Western calendar before the revolution. This is the abdication of Tsar Nicholas and Tsar Nicholas II. And one of the arguments I put in that is that this revolution which leads to the Tsar's abdication is not actually an, an anti-war Revolution. Um, that, of course, the people who protest in the st- on the streets of Petrograd are protesting about shortages of bread. And the troops who refuse to fire on them refuse to fire on them because they are. Could find it abhorrent to shoot down civilians, especially when they're only recently gone into uniform themselves. Many of them are elderly family men, so that there is a kind of anti-war mood in the capital and on the streets of, of uh, what's now St. Petersburg, in those days called Petrograd. But Tsar Nicholas resigns, not particularly because of the. Not in the first instance because of the unrest in his capital city, but because of pressure on him from the general staff, from his military commanders, and also from the liberal politicians in the Russian parliament both of the groups, both of those groups want not to stop the war but to fight it more effectively and they think that Tsar Nicholas and his wife Alexandra have become obstacles to fighting the war more effectively because they're incompetent because they're reactionary, they're not good for maintaining wartime consensus and Alexandra of course is wrongly suspected of being in treasonable cahoots with the Germans so if you put all that together yeah, what happens if you like is the military and the um, civilian politicians who want to prosecute the war more effectively see Nicholas II and Alexandra as the obstacle and use the breakdown of law and order in the capital city as an opportunity to, to persuade him to go. Um, and he says in his diary when he abdicates that uh, much as he hates it, he thinks it's necessary um, for the survival of political unity in Russia and to win the war. And again, what needs to be remembered here is that the Russians and the Allies thought in the spring of 1917 that they were actually quite close to winning the war if they could hang on a little bit longer. Now, in fact, of course, what happens is that the Russian army and the high command quickly realize they've made a terrible mistake and the uh, abdication of the Tsar. Uh, accelerates the process of political disintegration in Russia. The Soviet established in Petrograd the Council of Workers and Soldiers Deputies issues orders which um, entail setting up soldiers committees in the army and undermine the the authority of the officer corps. So you move to a situation quite rapidly where any kind of authority over the population breaks down really and it becomes almost impossible for Russia to continue the war effort. Now if you take your American example, um, what I try to argue is that Woodrow Wilson, of course, doesn't want really to bring America into the war, though he eventually reconciles himself to the argument that is necessary. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to do nothing in the face of the U-boat sinkings that happen of Allied and neutral shipping from 1915 onwards. The crucial event here is the sinking of the British liner, the Lusitania in May of 1915. And Wilson writes a letter soon after that, which is very revealing, where he says with all his heart he wishes he could satisfy the double wish of the American people, which is on the one hand to be firm in the demands placed on the Germans over the U-boat sinking, but on the other hand, to do nothing that will involve America by any stretch of imagination in the war. And what he does is pursue a kind of middle course, which in other words is not to threaten war, but to make demands on the Germans and become increasingly insistent that the Germans should abandon unrestricted submarine warfare. And as time goes on and the level of confrontation increases, he starts to threaten break-off of diplomatic relations, and he gives cautious approval to American rearmament, both naval and on land. So Wilson, if you like, by trying to follow a middle road, finds himself in practice on a road that leads to more and more acute confrontation so that by 1917 when the Germans cross his red line and uh, embark on unrestricted submarine warfare despite his repeated warnings against it then he's in a position where it's very difficult for him to back down and he in the end tips towards the other side of the scales and recommends that America to Congress that America must come in
0: how do you uh if it's a fair question how do you evaluate uh wilson uh, and, and his leadership at at this uh at this moment uh, is he walking the razor's edge skillfully between one side and the other is he led by events, and um, uh, clearly there are voices like Theodore Roosevelt who would like full uh, war right away. Clearly, he's worried about uh, German Americans and uh, the Irish Americans who who are no friends of the British Empire. Elsewhere, you've written about the the, the number of German language newspapers in the United States. What are the what are his? Um, what are his influences and how does he handle them? And how, how do you uh, consider him as, uh, as a leader for uh, as the man of the hour?
1: Well, in many ways, I think he's an effective leader um, if, during the neutrality period and while America was in the war and uh, things go wrong really in 1919 at the, at the peace conference and after the war had come to an end, um, then they go really spectacularly wrong. But um, during the neutrality period, one of the things that he's very concerned about is to keep the American public united. And uh, of course, he doesn't have public opinion polls or sophisticated methods of gauging what public opinion is. Um, and perhaps himself kind of like lacks much experience of American life beyond the academic world and the, the religious world. Um, so he's limited in that sense. Though he has some quite shrewd advisors um, about the domestic politics and about how to handle Congress. But I think he knows. That it's not feasible to bring America into the war, even that he wanted to, until really pretty late, until probably after the Zimmerman Telegram affair in March of 1917. So it's only a month, only a few weeks before America actually comes in. Does he think that the domestic situation would actually? permit him to go to Congress with a reasonable chance of, uh, of, of getting approval for a declaration of war. And in the end, of course, he does get big majorities for declaring war, both in the Senate and and in the House of Representatives.
0: Maybe, could you say a word what the Zimmerman te- telegram say, say? Yeah.
1: Yes, the Zimmerman telegram, I should, sorry, I should explain that for your audience. This is an extraordinary, bizarre episode, really. Um, This is a telegram sent by the German foreign minister, uh, Arthur Arthur Zimmermann, to the German representative in Mexico City. And what it's proposing is that if America comes into the war, Germany and Mexico should form an alliance, and uh, if that alliance is successful and the Americans are defeated, the Germans would be supportive of Mexico regaining the territory that Americans had conquered from Mexico after the Mexican War in the 1840s, so Texas, California, New Mexico. Not only that, but it proposes that the Japanese should be invited to join this alliance. Remember, the Japanese are actually on the Allied side in the First World War, but the hope is that the Japanese can be brought over to join Germany and Mexico. Now, if you can imagine that all of this will set when, once this is published in the American newspapers, this te- telegram, it will set off alarm bells ringing in California, where there's strong anti Japanese sentiment because of Japanese immigration before the war, and also in the South and Southwest, where the areas that stand to be handed over to Mexico. And it was published in the American press because the uh, British Foreign Office. Um, the British Admiralty actually decrypted it. It was an extraordinary story, but it was sent via the American diplomatic cables to Washington, which Wilson was prepared to allow in, an order, in order to in support his efforts to mediate peace, he was allowing the Germans to communicate using the American cables, because the German cables across the Atlantic have been cut by the British. So the Germans send it in code, but the British, of course, are also intercepting the American diplomatic traffic, and they therefore intercept this concealed German message, are able to decrypt it in London, realize its significance, and then they have to find a means of passing it over to Woodrow Wilson without disclosing that they're reading the American cables, and they, they find a means of doing that. They basically intercept and capture another copy of it in Mexico City, so they're able to tell the Germans it's been in, in, that they got hold of this information in Mexico City. Woodrow Wilson immediately accepts the authenticity of the document, rightly, and it's published in the American newspapers and has a bombshell effect for the, for the reasons I've described and that happens at a critical moment in March 1917. And it's so crazy
0: because on the one hand Japan is probably very happily with the allies snapping up German colonies in 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 China, Qingdao and other places and the Mexicans are in the middle of a very long and difficult revolution of their own. So such it, it it's uh so ludicrous because of the great political uh blow to the to the German cause in the United States for
1: Really, no possible uh, gain. Well, it seems inexplicable, but the the, the the Japanese, yes, they were on the Allied side, but the, there had been Japanese feelers to the Germans via Stockholm in 1916, whose um, significance the Germans obviously overestimated because there's actually a change of government in Japan in early 1917, and the Japanese swing in a much more strongly committed pro-Allied direction. With the Mexicans, the Germans had also been in contact with Mexico. They'd been approached by the, um, the Mexican president, Venustiano Carranza, who, of of course, was in dispute with the Americans. The Americans had intervened twice uh, in the Mexican Revolution. The American forces had gone to Veracruz in 1914-15 uh, and uh, also in 1916 uh, an American expeditionary force goes into northern Mexico commanded by General Pershing who was later to command the American expeditionary force in France. And He's, he's chasing the Mexican forces under Villa that had attacked across the border and uh, had caused a lot of havoc and destruction in, in Columbus, New Mexico. Um, so, it's, it's not as crazy as it seems if you place it in context, but nonetheless, obviously, the Germans totally overestimated the potential for a combination between themselves and Mexico and Japan. There no, no, seems to be no evidence that the Mexicans were seriously. Interested in doing this and joining with the Germans and still less the Japanese, Um, and of course the Germans underest well Germans had had didn't expect it the traffic to be read and for the whole thing to be published in the American newspapers.
0: And this is an aspect of the book I also very much appreciate that it lifts our attention from the trenches in Flanders to the whole whole world and. many independent countries, those not directly subsumed into European empires, but are stuck in their spheres of influence or uh, subject to unequal treaties, they take the opportunity at this moment in the war to challenge the conditions of their uh, subaltern standing. And and here you write about Greece and Brazil and Siam, and then uh, most notably about uh, Japan, which is different because as a a military contender having defeated China in 1895 and Russia in 1905 was, was an ally of Britain with its own naval power. Uh, would you um, maybe say a bit about this and also your consideration of China, which saw Japan as the greatest threat to its sovereignty more than any European empire, but could not resist uh, Japan because uh, Japan had joined this, the, the war on the side of the, of the allies?
1: Well, one of the arguments in the book is the, the book looks at the reasons for the continuing political and military stalemate in Europe, but it also looks at the impact of that continuing stalemate on the wider world. And uh, this is one of the reasons why 1917 is, is important. If the war had been ended in 1916 or 15, then these global repercussions would have been smaller. Um, but one of the arguments it it puts is that the the war contributes to the beginning of the process that leads to decolonization and the breakup of the European empires. The key example here is India, you know, which is the most important part of the of the British um, overseas colonial empire. And uh, There is a promise made in August 1917 of responsible government, quote unquote. Um, for for India, which begins the process that leads to the devolution of British authority in India. Um, But it's also true if you look at what's sometimes called informal empire, that uh, the countries that were nominally independent in the outside world, like China, Persia, Siam, um, had all been subjected to so-called unequal treaties, which meant, for example, that they weren't able to raise their tariffs without consent of the European powers, um, that if an American or a European citizen committed a criminal act on Chinese territory, then they would be tried under the extraterritoriality principle, they'd be tried according to the law of their own country by their consul and rather than in the Chinese courts. This similarly applies in the Ottoman Turkish uh, Empire and it also applies in, and as I've mentioned, in Siam so, and, in, and in what's now Iran, then Persia. But this system also Um, can be challenged in the circumstances of the war when the European countries are preoccupied with fighting each other and China is the best example of this. China entered the war in August 1917 and for various reasons it joins the Allied side. But one of the reasons why it enters when it does is that it sees the opportunity of coming into the war will strengthen their hand in um, Breaking up the system of extraterritoriality and the unequal treaties that had been imposed on China in the 19th century. The other reason why it comes in, of course, is to strengthen its position against Japan, which was, uh, as we've seen, on the Allied side. And Japan had been you'd cro- use the advantage of the war, opportunity created by the war, to expand into northern China, particularly by taking over the German leased territory uh, in the province of, of Shandong, northern China.
0: From there, may I ask you a, a follow-up question? Uh, and this is sort of the miracle of the internet at work here because I was able to watch the other day a talk you gave in Kansas City two months ago. And at this event, a woman in the audience uh, asked you about uh, Japan as an Anglo-American ally in World War I and then as an adversary in World War Two. And you replied about American sympathies with the Chinese, which you also write about in the book. And you explained that the Americans embargoed Japanese steel and limited their shipbuilding capacity But then would later recognize Japanese economic rights in China, but not political rights, which is a question to be revisited in the 1930s and 40s, of course. But uh, with with these efforts and considerations, you also talk about something called War Plan Orange, which was was a plan for the Americans to fight the Japanese uh, much earlier in the 20th century. And so I wonder if it's really such a surprise for the Americans to find themselves at war with the empire of Japan a generation later, as we so often present it in popular history, rather that, uh, that Franklin Roosevelt was preparing for a war with Hitler but got one with Japan instead. I The Americans,
1: we tend to think of war planning before 14 as a, before First World War as a, as a European phenomenon. The, the Schlieffen Plan in Germany is the best known example. Of course, the, everybody was doing war plans and were setting up general staffs and producing contingency plans for fighting a war. From about in the American case, from about 1900, there's War Plan Black against the Germans and War Plan Orange against the Japanese. Uh, it's significant that it's that from that early, from the turn of the century, 20th century, that those two enemies are being identified and contingency plans being drawn up for fighting a war against them. Um, and certainly if one looks at the record of American diplomacy between 1914 and 1918, there's already a good deal of evidence that Woodrow Wilson's administration was extremely suspicious of the Japanese. Um, there's a lot of anti-Japanese feeling, as we've already mentioned, on the west coast of the United States among American public opinion in California and, uh, and uh, Washington State. Um, and uh, actually, before April 19. 19- Seventeen. Before the crisis with the Germans reached acute point, the um, navy was the the the, the um, navy war planners were actually burnishing up and brushing up on Plan Orange, so that they were very worried about Japanese expansion in the first phase of the war at China's expense. And also, the Japanese overran Germany's North Pacific islands, the Carolines, uh, Marianas, and Marshall chains. So Japan was expanding its sphere of influence in, in the North Pacific and in China, and there were a lot of American sympathies with China and um, a good deal of strength of perception among Wilson and his advisors that Japan Japan was becoming an extremely dangerous country. So once the Americans got into the war, of course they were on the same side then as the Allies, including the Japanese and some, si- some sort of accommodation needed to be reached. Um, that wasn't reached without a certain amount of American pressure on the Japanese, including, as you've mentioned, American restriction of steel exports to the Japanese, but the outcome is something called the Lansing-Ishii Agreement. This is uh, between Secretary of State Lansing and Ishii, who was the Japanese envoy sent over to, to the United States, being a former Japanese Foreign Minister. This is November 1917 and it's essentially an agreement to, differ, to disagree, um, but the Americans accept in rather guarded and deliberately vague language, the Japanese control, at least for the duration of the war, of the former territory controlled by the Germans in North China, in the North Chinese province of Shandong. Um, Afterwards, both Langxing and Yi Shi publicly disagreed about what the agreement had meant, but in practice what it means is that the Americans are shelving the principle of putting pressure pressure on the Japanese until the war is over, so kind of one enemy at a time. After the war ended, of course, there's another major conflict confrontation over Shandong at the Paris Peace Conference in 1919, when the Americans try to get the um, and the Japanese out, basically. The Japanese refuse to go. Um, and uh, the issue isn't resolved, really, until the Washington Conference in 1921-22, when there's more American pressure applied, and then the Japanese do pull out of Shandong. But anyway, the point is that there is a, a lot of Japanese-American friction in this period, in the, in the 1920s, and this helps to explain, form the attitudes, and helps to explain why there's a Japanese-American confrontation again once the Japanese move back to... a uh, a position of uh, policy of expansion on the Asian mainland, which they do after the Manchurian crisis of 1931-33. So there is a long road to confrontation, and it's certainly not true, really, that anybody in America should have been surprised, really, that the confrontation leads to armed conflict in 1941.
0: And that's something we don't often consider, at least in, in sort of popular culture about the Pacific. We 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 know
1: very. F- um, very well. Well, the, the Pearl Harbor doesn't come out of nowhere. I mean, this is not this is a whole other story, of course. But the, the, the Roosevelt administration did very little about Japanese expansion in China, beyond criticizing it and not recognizing it um, for most of the 1930s. Um, from 1940 onwards, the, Jap- the Americans was screwing up the econo- stepping up the economic pressure against the Japanese, and of course the immediate. Context for Pearl Harbor is the American imposition of an oil embargo on Japan in July of one thousand nine hundred and forty one which was applying pretty, pretty drastic economic pressure on the Japanese and pushing them into a corner of course the, and that in turn is partly done because of the situation in in europe and it 's a whole complicated story here, but the Americans thought it necessary to take the pressure or potential pressure of the British and Russians by applying pressure on the Japanese
0: so and uh, we we think about this and also especially about um the end of the war and the treaty of versailles uh as the direct um antecedent to the second world war uh, which is that 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 line of discussion is well known my question is now that we're 100 years after the event uh, uh what are the lessons of the First World War for the period since the Second World War? For example, in your conclusion, you you say, like American leaders during the war in Vietnam, the Allied statesmen expanded military operations after weighing alternatives with little optimism. And uh, I... I this, you, you, you write this on, on the heels of a popular Vietnam documentary that came out uh, earlier this fall, uh, in which there's quite a lot of recordings of Nixon and Kissinger speaking together about how hopeless the war is, but they might as well continue until re-election re-election and, and, and so on. And uh, I, I suppose my question is, the more things change, do they stay the same? And if I may add, also, into the Bush and Obama years, Bush, who who led us on many adventures to Afghanistan and Iraq with great optimism and President Obama, who drew red lines, but then ignored them for the opposite reason.
1: Yeah. One of the books that influenced me in writing this uh, was quite an old book about Vietnam actually by uh, Leslie Gelb and Richard Betts called The Irony of Vietnam System Worked, which relied heavily on the Pentagon Papers actually, which uh, are in the news again these days. But the, the, the Gelb and Betts argument was that actually... I think not everybody accepts this, but their argument was that Johnson did his best, Lyndon Johnson did his best to do everything right, that he, he did hold debates, he did listen to opposing points of view. Um, so actually, it's it's wrong to see the system that leads to intervention in Vietnam as, as the product of groupthink and totally irrational and so on. This is, this is not right. There was a serious debate. Uh, other historians do disagree with that, I have to say. Yeah, But this is the Gelb and Betts argument that the American leaders went into Vietnam and approved, built up the strength of the American military commitment there in 64-65 even though they were actually not particularly optimistic about the choices, the prospects of success. Um, but they thought the alternative, of if you like, of backing down and uh, some, producing some kind of compromise solution and abandoning South Vietnam w- was, was unacceptable. It was better to take the gamble, even though they weren't very optimistic about the chances of the gamble working, but they were following some kind of rational process. And uh, it seemed to me that some of the decision making I was looking at in 1917 was rather like that, and that the uh, dynamics of a stalemate war are rather similar, whether you're looking at 1914 to 17 or whether you're looking at 1964 to 65. Um, so that that was the argument, and I dare, dare say one could find other stalemate wars, perhaps even the American Civil War in its middle years, to which some to which these kind of arguments could could, could be applied. Uh, it's it's important because the I don't think you can understand why wars happen and why they continue by seeing them simply as a kind of gung-ho, irrational process. Once people have got into a war, there's a terrible uh, paradox which starts to erupt, if you like, at sunk costs. Um, Wars are not made by a single decision to go all out until you win. Wars are made by a decision of succession of incremental sequential decisions, of little decisions if you like, to carry on, see if the next offensive works, reject the latest peace feeler, um, see if you carry on a bit longer and gamble that your next offensive will be successful and bring breakthrough, because always in war you're operating in circumstances of great uncertainty. But of course, what happens if the next offensive fails is that you've got then another Casualty bill, thousands of more casualties, which makes it harder still for you to disengage from the war on a compromised basis. So it's kind of incremental decisions getting people into a trap, from which it's very difficult for them to escape. That's that's the kind of dynamic which is at work, and I think this applies in you know not in lots of wars, not not just in the First World War or indeed in Vietnam.
0: This is also why I'm so bad at poker: is that uh, you c- commit and commit and commit, and then it's too late and you can't get out. Uh, do you have any thoughts about uh, the, the presidents of the 21st century, and especially how different or maybe similar they have been? Or would you compare, you know, uh, President Obama, say, to President Wilson as this sort of almost um, academic, reticent fellow who ends up pulled into things? Or is this just too
1: fanciful and ridiculous to talk about? Okay, this this needs to be the the, the last question, actually. But um, I yeah, um, I, I think the yeah, I think the, the the parallel between Obama and uh, and Wilson is quite a well observed one. Um, that both of them, if you like, were, were thoughtful people. They weren't natural warmongers. Um, they uh, had an awareness of the, what casualty figures meant. They they weren't irresponsible or light-hearted in in committing their country to overseas military engagements. And um, They like to operate in a fairly rational way, they like to think things through to have a reason for the actions that they were doing. Um, I think that Obama, my sense of him is that he was more naturally consultative than Wilson. One of the arguments about Wilson, especially as he went on, and became more confident or overconfident in his judgment, was that he didn't listen to advisers and was re- very reluctant to operate in a bipartisan fashion. Wilson was an entrenched Democrat. Obama, to be sure, was a Democrat as well, but a Democrat when he came to office, who was hoping that the level of partisanship in American politics could be, could be toned down uh, had it had gone too far. Um, whether he had the uh, response that he was hoping for from the Republican side is, is, is another matter. But I see Obama as, as a more consultative, less divisive, less partisan figure in his approach than Wilson? But, uh, at, at least when he began, and I think to some extent continuing actually through his administration. Um, part of the, the, the problem with Wilson is that uh, you know there was there was a strong autocratic divisive elements in his personality um, and one shouldn't underestimate that and that's part of the reason why he eventually came to grief thank you so much, you have given us an hour of your time and thank you so so, so
0: much for uh, talking it's a delight and a privilege uh, to speak with you this morning or afternoon in Britain And uh, congratulations on this excellent book ok,
1: thank you very much, it's been a pleasure to talk to you